Last summer, which seems like a long time ago when the wind chill is negative six, like it is today, right? Last summer, I took our junior high students over to SEMO to a high ropes course. And uh, if you're not familiar with these, there's different things that you do up high. If you're scared of heights like me, it's very challenging. And the way that we ended our time is we ended with what's called the giant swing. And I believe that we're going to have a picture of the giant swing come up here in case you haven't seen one of these before. So what you do is you and a buddy get strapped up in this harness. The rest of your group gets a rope, and they run with the rope, and they pull you up 40 feet in the air. And then you kind of hit this locking device, and whenever you and your friend are ready, you pull this cord so that you can plunge down toward your death, or so that you can plunge down in a giant swinging motion, hoping that it's not plummeting you toward your death. And you swing up, and you swing back and forth several times, and finally come, come to a rest. Well, I am scared of heights, and so things like this are difficult for me to do. I, I like to challenge myself, and I, I like to give it a shot, but the thing that always helps me actually do it is I have to trust the apparatus. In this case, I have to trust the rope. I have to be very, very confident and very assured that this rope is not going to break. And so we had our first two brave students, Ryan and Bryson Criddle, and they get strapped up. Our group, we pull the rope. It pulls them up 40 feet in the air. They're supposed to be able to decide when they're going to pull the cord so that they can come swinging down, but something malfunctioned. And instead, as soon as we dropped our rope, they just went and they kind of free fell for about 15 feet, and then the rope caught on something, and they kind of dangled around, their legs went up in the air, and I was like, that, I, I know it's not supposed to look like that. And so the team there said, hey, we got it figured out. The locking device didn't set properly. We've, we've got it. Don't worry about it. It's not going to happen again. And I'm like, really? I, I was building up the courage. I was going to do this, and now I'm thinking, I, I want no part of this. Well, Ryan and Bryson, very brave, they did it, everything worked fine. People that were lined up in front of me, there were many, because I wasn't going next. They went, everything went fine, and I was like, okay. As, as fears and doubts started coming to my mind, I was like, now wait a second, everybody else has been fine. They've trusted the rope, they had confidence in the rope, the rope held them, and odds are there's been hundreds of other people that I don't even know that have done the giant swing, and they've, they've ended up just fine. So me and another leader, we got in the giant swing, they hoisted us up, when we finally had enough courage, we yanked that cord and we went flying down in a swinging motion like we were supposed to, screaming like a girl, but nonetheless, swung out and came back and had a great time on the ride. You see, where we are at with our trust and our confidence and our assurance in something makes all the difference in the world. And I thought about that story and I thought, you know, that can be a lot like our faith in God. <clears throat> it can be like this giant swing. We need to know that as we face life, which oftentimes can be very difficult and can be very scary, we need to know that just like that rope, God is not going to let me go. God is going to hold me tight through the things that are difficult and scary in my life. He's going to be there for me. He has my back. He's in control of the situation. He's never going to let me go. Today, I want to talk with you guys about the importance of our confidence, or rather our assurance, in our relationship with God. Do you know for sure that you have a relationship with God? Do you believe that He is going to hold you up and He's going to keep you through the ups and downs of life, no matter what? 
If you do, that is going to change how you live your life of faith. Or possibly, you live your life of fear and doubt. That's going to change how you live out your faith if you have a rock-solid confidence and assurance that God is never going to let you go. And that's going to be what we talk about today, is the doctrine of assurance. And first, before we kind of dive into this, I think there's two good questions for us to ask. The first one is, is our salvation secure? Because if it's not secure, then we shouldn't be assured of that. Secondly, if it is secure, does God want us to be assured of our salvation? And I think the Bible gives a resounding yes to both of those questions. Jesus says that our salvation is secure in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. He says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. There's a lot of definite statements that we see in here. In verse 37, Jesus said, the ones that the Father gives will come to Jesus. The ones Jesus receives will never be driven away. In verse 39, Jesus says, he will lose none of his own. In verse 40, he says, those who look to the Son and believe, they will be raised up on the last day. These are statements that are to instill surety and confidence in believers about their salvation. A couple chapters later in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So again, we see more definite, concrete statements. My sheep will listen to my voice. They will follow me. They will not perish. No one can take them out of my hand. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. These are clear statements about a believer's salvation that can give us confidence. There's no conditions here. It's not conditional. These are things that are are going to happen when you put your faith and trust in Christ. And it's not just Jesus that talks about this. This would be enough. Paul talks about this too in Romans 8, 29 through 30. He talks about it in Philippians 1, 6. Peter talks about this as well in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And we don't have time, that's a whole other sermon to really dive into this topic, but we're just scratching the surface with a few passages to know that our eternal destiny is secure. And <clears throat> there are some believers that think that the Bible doesn't teach this, and again, that's a whole other message, but I think when we look at troubled passages like Hebrews 3 or Hebrews 6, when we examine the context, I think it's clear that the Bible's not referring to us losing our salvation. So suffice it to say that as a believer, we have a secure salvation. So in our, here's our next question, our main focus today is, if we do have a secure salvation, then does God want us to know that? Because it might be a pretty good trump card for God to be like, yeah, your salvation's secure, but I don't really want you to know that, because if you know that, then you might start slacking and not do anything for me. You might just be like, well, I'm saved. So what's the big deal? I'm just going to kind of sit back and coast through this life and not really do anything to further advance the kingdom. But the thing is, God is not like that. As a heavenly father, he doesn't deal with us in that way. He's a father, not a slave owner, and he adores us as children, not just employees trying to get his work done. Here's what John has to say in John 14:18. This is when um, Jesus to the cross is looming. 
His disciples are confused. They're worried. What's going to happen to Jesus? What's going to happen to us? And Jesus tells them in John 14, 18, he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm not going to leave you. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So believers are not fatherless. They're children of God. And I think about myself as a father, and I think, there's a lot of things that I want my kids to know. I want my kids to know things about life. I want my kids to develop skills. Um, I want my kids to develop great character. There's a lot of things that I want them to know and become. But if there was the, a number one thing that I would want them to know and learn from me is that I love them and that I'm never, ever going to disown them or leave them, whether their performance in life is great or poor. I'm always going to be there for them. I'm never going to leave them. I'm always going to love them through everything in life. As an earthly dad, if that's my greatest desire, and I think it's a good desire, our Heavenly Father, that much more, don't you think he wants his children to know, I'm never going to leave you, I'm never going to forsake you, you're going to have rough days and you're going to have good days, but I want you to know that my hand is going to be on you and I'm going to be with you through all of it. Don't you think that he would want to know the same thing? It makes me think of Matthew chapter 7. We're in that gospel uh, it says that, um, you know, you as an earthly father, you want to give good things to your, to your kids? Well, you're evil. Your heavenly father wants to give good gifts even great, to a greater degree than you. And I think this is one of the gifts that he wants to give his children is assurance of our salvation. <clears throat> but as we look at this issue, I think that a lot of believers struggle with this. And they struggle with the fact that God dearly loves me. He's going to be with me through the ups and downs of my life until I reach heaven. And here's a couple suggestions as to why I think that this is a struggle for Christians. Number one is Satan is real. Satan is real. Revelation 12.10 says that he is the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. He stands before God accusing us, saying, look at Andy, didn't you see what he did, see what he said? He's not worthy. It's easy to accuse me. I sin, I do, I do things that are wrong. And it'd be easy to accuse you. We all struggle, we all sin, we all do the wrong things. And he would love nothing more than for us to dwell on our unworthiness and to question God's love and whether God can continue to put up with me for the rest of my life or not, with the struggles that I have. So number one, one reason why I think we struggle with assurance of salvation is because Satan is real, and he is casting accusations toward us. Secondly, I think it's because we can get very focused on a past experience with our salvation rather than a present posture. And I'm going to dive into what that means uh, a little bit more here in just a second. But we can get so focused on whenever I was six, I prayed that prayer. When I was at that event, I had that experience. I asked Jesus into my heart. I got baptized. And the problem can be when we focus on our past to find assurance, we can start to ask questions like this. We can start to say, well, I think I meant it, if I remember right. Was my heart in the right spot? Well, I, I think so, but I'm not really sure. And did I truly understand what I was doing? I'm, I'm kind of having trouble remembering how that all happened. Well, today, we are going to look at a more solid way to look at your life today and gain assurance of your salvation. And really this begins not with a past experience and focusing on that, but really a present posture. And the posture that we are looking at, that we want to be living in our lives, is a posture of repentance and belief. Are you currently in a posture of repentance and belief? And I don't want you to hear me wrong. 
Salvation is something that took place in the past. It was an experience you have in the moment that you did, that you were converted. John 5.24 says that you pass from death to life. So it's something that happens in an instant. But what I am saying is to gain assurance of that past transaction that happened, we need to be looking at our lives today in the posture that we are in. Are we in a posture of repentance and belief in Jesus? The Bible never commands us to pray the sinner's prayer. It never commands us to ask Jesus into our hearts. But Jesus does command us to repent and believe in Mark 1.15. Here's what it says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So if you want assurance of your salvation, you need to know, have I repented and have I believed? Am I clear on what that means? And today, do I have a, do I have a heart that reflects a repentant heart and one that has believed in Jesus as my Lord? That's going to be how we gain confidence in our standing before God. So before I go further into what does it mean to believe and what does it mean to repent, I want to recommend this little book. A lot of the thoughts that I have today came from this book. It's by J.D. Greer, and it's called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, How to Know for Sure You Are Saved. This is the study that we did with our youth over the last uh, uh, semester, and I think that it was really eye-opening for me and for a lot of students. As he talked about his own struggles, he's the pastor of a megachurch in North Carolina, but he talked about even well into Bible school, he was struggling with, Am I saved? Do I know for sure that I'm saved? I don't know. Was that experience that I had right? In fact, he got baptized four times, none as an infant, because he kept thinking, well, I don't know if that past experience was, if my heart was in the right spot, if I had the right motivation, if I clearly understood. And as he struggled with this, he started to realize that he wasn't alone, that there was a lot of believers that struggled with the assurance of their salvation. So he wrote this book, and I think it was, uh, it was very helpful for us as we went through it. And um, maybe you accepted Christ at a young age. Maybe you simply just don't know the exact time or date that you came to Christ. I think that this message is going to be helpful for you. If you do, I think gaining a better understanding of repentance and belief and being able to help someone that is struggling or to be able to better articulate the gospel, I think this is still going to be a message that hopefully is helpful to you. So I don't remember where we're at on our outline here, but the first understanding point is understanding belief, if you're taking notes. Understanding belief. What is biblical belief? Does it simply mean to know that something exists? Is that what Jesus meant? And it can't be. It can't just be to know a fact about something, because demons know that God exists. But we're not going to be living next door to demons in heaven, so it can't just be simply knowing facts. James said in James 2.19, he's making the case that a simple belief in facts is not enough. He says, you believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And then in Matthew's gospel, we see demons saying this to Jesus in Matthew 8.29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Demons have some great theology. These demons are declaring Jesus is God's son. They know he has the power to torture them. They know that there's an appointed time for their doom. But yet, sound theology apparently is not enough. That's not the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about. They, demons aren't saved from sin, death, and destruction through the kind of belief that they have. So what is the type of belief that Jesus is talking about? I think that this story can give you a little better picture. Back around the Civil War era, there was a guy named Charles Blondin. And Charles Blondin was a French acrobat, a very daring guy. 
And he was the first man to walk a quarter mile on a tightrope 160 feet up in the air across the ravine that's Niagara Falls. So in 1859, he goes from the American side all the way to the Canadian side, much to the roaring approval of the crowd. They are amazed that somebody was even willing to do this, much less actually made it. There was no safety harnesses. There were no nets. If he falls, he's dead. And he walks all the way across, and people are just floored. But for Charles Blondin, it wasn't enough. So I think I can do that again. So this time he walked back across, but he went backwards. And then he continued to say, you know what, I think I can up the ante, and I think I can do it again. So he walked across it blindfolded. And then he walked across it on stilts. Then he walked across it, he laid down in the middle, and he took pictures of the crowd. He walked across it another time, and he took a chair. Don't know how that fed on a tightrope, but the story says that he took a chair, and he took some kind of stove, and he made an omelet in the middle and ate it as everybody watched him. This guy was very daring, but he was very confident that he could make it across. And maybe the greatest feat that he had is he pushed a loaded wheelbarrow all the way across the tightrope. So when he did that, when the crowd was just, they were in awe. They were just cheering exuberantly. They thought, this, this is the, one, of, one of the most amazing things we've ever seen. And so when Charles Blondin comes across, he notices that one guy in particular is extremely excited and just hooping and hollering and cheering for him. And he says, you, sir... Do you think that I can put someone in this wheelbarrow and push them across to safety? And he says, oh, yeah, you can do anything. You've proven it. I mean, you, you can do it any way that you want. He says, well, are you so confident that, that you think you could get in the wheelbarrow and I could push you across? Oh, yes, I know that you could. And he said, well, then hop in. And the man refused. He didn't have faith. He didn't have true belief. Because to just believe something in your head to just believe some facts, that's not what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about biblical belief. He's talking more about the word that we usually use, which is faith. And faith means that we are moved to action, that what we believe in our minds is so strong, we would be willing to bet our life, our eternity on it, and it moves us into action. We're willing to get in the wheelbarrow and be completely at the mercy of the one who's pushing us across the ravine. So true faith is belief in action. And it's not just knowing stuff about Jesus. It's believing he can carry me safely from where I'm at in life all the way to the other side. And he alone can do it. It also means that when I have true belief in him, I don't, ha I don't believe in myself. I don't think that if you give me enough time, I'll get it right. That if I have enough determination, I can do this. Or if I just gain a few more skills, I know that I can do it. No, we believe that if I was to try this, I would plummet to my death and destruction. There's no way that I can do it. So when I have true faith in Christ, I don't have faith in myself, that I'm able to do anything to deliver myself. John talks about this in 1 John 5, 10 through 12. He says, what are you believing? Well, you're believing the testimony about Jesus. God has given us a testimony about Jesus that you choose to believe or you choose to reject. In 1 John 5, 10 through 12, it says, Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the testimony that God expects us to believe 
And if we do, the next verse says, if you do, here's the great thing. You can know that you have eternal life. Many people would say, well, that's very cocky and that's very arrogant to think that you can know, you can know that you have a relationship with God. You can know for certain when you die that you're going to go to heaven. That's arrogant. That's very prideful. But John tells us right here, if you believe that testimony with the kind of belief that we just talked about, says, then you can know. In 1 John 5.13, John continues. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's pretty simple. There's eternal life in Jesus alone. He's my only hope. Which, again, means there is no eternal life in me. I have no hope in myself and my ability to save myself. And that's the part that I think for many people is tough to swallow. That means that on my best day ever, I fall miserably short of God's standard. There's absolutely no way that I can ever reach a standard if you give me enough time, if you give me, uh, if I have the right determination, if you catch me on a good day, it doesn't matter. I'll always fall miserably short. And that hurts. That hurts to believe that about ourselves. But that's part of believing the testimony about Jesus. And you accept this or you reject it. You cling to Jesus as your only hope as he carries you over the pit to safety. And that's faith. That's the kind of biblical belief that Jesus is talking about. So that's belief. Have you believed in Jesus like that? If you're like, yeah, I have, then you're one step closer to being assured of your salvation. But the next thing that Jesus said, he said belief, and then he also said repent, right? So the next thing is understanding repentance. Understanding repentance. You know, changing somebody's mind can be pretty tough to do. If I'm kind of set on lunch at McAllister's whenever we get done here, and you say, well, I really want to go to lunch with you, but I was thinking Beef O'Brady's. You're like, well, I might put up a little fight. And you're like, I, I really don't, I was really set on McAllister's. You're like, well, let's go to Beef O'Brady's and here's why. Well, you could probably talk me out of, of that decision. So it's maybe not too hard to change somebody's mind on something that's small, but on something that's a bigger deal, we're, we're stubborn. We're set in our ways. And if somebody's trying to convince me, you know, I really don't think adultery is wrong in every circumstance, and you're like, man, I'm set on that one. Yes, it is. It's wrong. It's a sin. And it doesn't matter the circumstance. And you're not going to get me to budge on my opinion on that. In fact, George Barney, he's a Christian researcher, and he found that by the age of nine, that most children have already decided what's right and wrong. Even kids are already kind of set in their ways, and they're already like, I'm not changing my mind on this. This is what I believe. Well, changing somebody's mind on a big issue is tough, but that's exactly what happens when someone repents. Their mind changes about Jesus. And this is a really big deal because we can be so set in our ways. And so it's nothing short of a miracle for somebody to go from their mind being set a certain way in their worldview in their life, in the afterlife, in about this young carpenter that existed 2,000 years ago, and thinking, eh, I'm thinking this way to all of a sudden, I'm thinking Jesus is, he's, he's my savior and I need him. And I'm thinking that there's an afterlife in heaven and I, I've switched from what I was thinking and kind of where my mind was set to something totally different. That is a God thing and that is miraculous and that's exactly what repentance is. Repentance is a transformation of the mind. Charles Spurgeon said it well whenever he said, instead of saying repentance is only a change of mind, it seems more truthful to say that it is a great and deep change, even a change in the mind itself. 
So repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of actions in how you live out your life. And somebody goes from either actively or passively rejecting this testimony about Christ as God's Son, that eternal life is in Him alone and it's not in me, to this shift where all of a sudden they're like, wow, He's my everything. He's worthy of my worship. And it can be something that's really obvious, like in the life of Paul. Paul was actively rejecting the testimony about Jesus. And he hated it so much that he's like, anybody that accepts that testimony, I'm going to get them. And so he's condoning the death of Stephen in Acts 7 and Acts 8. He's dragging Christians off to prison because he hates them and he wants nothing to do with Jesus. He actively is rejecting Jesus. But when he meets Jesus, things change in his heart and in his mind. All of a sudden, the things he hated, he now loves them. He loves Jesus. He loves people that love Jesus. And instead of destroying churches, he's establishing them. And he's, uh, he's loving the church. So some people actively hate Jesus, and they actively reject his testimony, but I would say most of us can relate more to passively rejecting Jesus. I know that's where I was. I grew up in church. I knew the gospel. I knew a lot about Jesus. But honestly, there's just things of this world I just loved more than him, and I was just into that more than I was into the things of God. And so I was passively rejecting Jesus until around age 19, and something happened in my heart and in my mind, and I started to realize Jesus was not just this distant historical figure that I knew a lot about, that he was my Savior and he was worthy of my worship every second of every day. Something radically changed in my heart and in my mind. That was repentance. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says that Christ redeemed me by his precious blood. So Christ's blood wasn't precious to me before, but after I repented, it was. And a relationship with him was a precious thing for me. This is a change that starts on the inside, but it starts to change the people you hang out with, the things that you say, the behaviors that you have, the things that you watch, the things that you're into, the things that you care about and love. And I started to experience that because of this radical transformation on the inside. Now, if you have a new attitude about Jesus that also means that you have a new attitude about sin. Because before, sin maybe was something that you looked at and you're like, yeah, I slip up every now and again, or I enjoy a little sin here and there, it's probably not really hurting anybody. But whenever I repent, all of a sudden I realize, no, no, sin sent my Savior to the cross. Sin's a big deal. I used, I used to love sin, now I hate it knowing what it's done to my Savior. I want nothing to do with it. So our attitude towards sin changes as well. Does that mean that you don't sin if you're a repentant person? No, that doesn't mean you don't still struggle with sin. Paul said in Romans 7, after coming to Christ in Romans 7, through 23, he said, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So Paul's like, I have this delight. I delight in God's law. I delight in who Christ is but I still struggle. I still struggle because I'm in the flesh. Do we still fail if you're a repentant believer? Yes, you do. Proverbs 24:16 says, For the righteous fall seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. So it's not that I'm not going to fall. It's that when I fall, I'm going to get back up by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit. I'm going to keep moving forward. Maybe it's inching forward, but I'm going to keep moving forward toward Jesus every time I do fall. So a repentant believer is still going to struggle with sin, but 
their attitude towards sin is radically different. Instead of loving it, they loathe it. Instead of coddling it, instead of practicing it, instead of protecting it, they now destroy it, they avoid it, and they expose it in their own life. And we see this in the church of Thessalonica. Paul writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, They tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They realize that God was greater than the idols and the sin that they had been living for. J.D. Greer in his book put it this way, he said, We turn from sin only because we see that God is greater than sin. Faith in God is the same as disfaith in something else. I'm not trusting in my idols to deliver me or to satisfy me anymore. Used to, I trusted in those things, like money, possessions, power, popularity, people, pleasure, whatever it was. I trusted in those things to deliver me. I trusted in those things to satisfy me. Not anymore. Not anymore. In fact, Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, he talks about how I used to trust in all this stuff, and to me, it's complete garbage now. A repentant person says, you know what, that stuff's garbage that I used to live for. He said, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Paul's like, that stuff was trash. I want nothing to do with it anymore. So repentance starts in the heart, and it starts in the mind, but it does get played out in your life. Someone should not say, well, I'm a repentant person, but yet, I mean, the pattern of my life is pretty much unbroken. Nothing's really changed here. Paul said again in Acts 26, 20, he said, first to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Repentance is seen in how we live. John the Baptist talked about this in Luke 3.8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And the fruit is seen in a changed life. So just turning from sin, I think, is not a great definition of repentance. It's really a change in mind that causes a faith-based change in your life to where you do turn from sin. So changing somebody's mind is tough. But to change somebody's mind about Jesus, that's a miracle. That is a Holy Spirit-infused miracle if that happens in somebody's life. Whether they're actively rejecting God or passively rejecting God, for them to change their mind about Christ as their Savior, that's a miracle that the Holy Spirit has to do. So hopefully we have a little better picture. Jesus said repent and believe. Hopefully we have a little better picture of what does it mean to repent and believe. And both of these things are required for salvation. They're like two sides of the same coin. They happen simultaneously. You can't be like, well, I've repented, but I haven't believed, or I believe, but I haven't repented. They happen simultaneously. They're one of the same. So my question is, have you done that? Have you believed like that? Have you repented like that? And if you have, then you can have assurance of your salvation. But how do you know for sure? And this is the last point that we're going to look at today. How to know if you've made a decision to repent and believe. How to know if you've made a decision to repent and believe. Well, the first thing is, examine your posture. Examine your posture. Greer gives this very helpful image, and it's posture. And you think about somebody's posture, you usually think, shoulders back, we get good posture here. But you think about how someone is standing, or maybe how someone is sitting, or someone's in a kneeling position, or someone's bowing down. Posture is a position that you hold for a certain period of time. That's posture. Greer gives the illustration of you need to be holding a certain posture towards Jesus, and that's one of repentance and belief. 
And so today, you stand in one of two postures. You are living in a posture of repentance and belief, or you are living in a posture of rebellion and unbelief. Which one is you? Do you believe the testimony about Jesus? Life is in him, which means life is not in me. If you believe that wholeheartedly, then that's one step closer to being assured of your salvation. Have you repented? Have you changed your mind about Jesus and about your sin and gone from maybe a flippant attitude about him and about sin to now I worship him with my whole heart? That's a sign that you can be assured of your salvation. So what is your posture today? And I say today because John in his letter in 1 John, when he's talking about believing, he talks about it in the present tense. And he's saying, I want you to know and be assured of your salvation John keeps pointing back to what's it look like right now? What's it look like today? Believe, believe, believe. Not did you believe, but believe. Are you believing right now? If you want to know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5.13, examine your present day posture. Don't look back to something that happened in the, in the past. You might have kind of foggy recollection, re- recollection about that. doesn't mean that it wasn't real, but if you want assurance of that transaction that happened, look at today. And it's kind of like this chair that I brought up here. So I can tell you, I believe in this chair. I know that this chair is going to hold me if I sit down on it. I have full confidence that if I was to sit down in this chair right now, that I would not look foolish, it would give out on me, and make me look silly in front of all of you. I have full confidence that this chair is going to hold me. But have I exercised faith in the chair yet? No. Not until I actually sit on it. Thankfully, it didn't break. So now that I am seated in this chair, you can look at me and say, yeah, you've exercised faith in that chair. There you are. You're in a seated position. You're resting in the chair. You trusted the chair. The chair is holding you. So if I was to ask you, But when exactly did I sit down in this chair? I don't think to the hundredth of a second any of you could actually tell me that. You could probably say, well, I don't know, it was like 20, 25 seconds ago, 30 seconds ago, something like that. You could give me a good ballpark as to when I sat down in this chair, but you're not going to know exactly when it happened. So let me ask you, what's the best evidence that I'm seated in this chair, that I've exercised faith in this chair? It's that I'm in the chair, right? I'm in the chair right now, and so I can look and say, I'm resting in the chair. I'm in a posture of rest and a seated posture in this chair. Now, I can think back and I can say, well, I think I know about when I sat down in this chair, but to to know for sure that I sat down in the chair, I look at my present state, and that proves I sat down in the chair at some point in the past. don't know exactly when it was, but when I look at my present posture, I can know I sat down in this chair. So it can be the same way with our faith, where did a transaction happen in the past? Yes, I hope that it did, but what do I need to look at to gain assurance of that? I need to look at where I'm at today. We need to examine the evidence, examine the evidence. Paul and John the Baptist both said that true repentance is going to be seen in somebody's life and how they live. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So we're commended to examine and test ourselves. 
Well, John gives several of these tests, and quite a few of them are just in 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to kind of breeze through them, but I would encourage you to look at these and to pray through these on your own in 1 John chapter 2. He boils it down to four tests just in that chapter. In verse 3, he says, do you love God and keep his commandments? Again, not perfectly, but is this a pattern that characterizes your life? If so, you pass the test. Do you love others? Do you love people? If so, you pass the test. Do you have a hatred for the things of the world? In verse 15. If so, then you pass the test. In verse 29, do you have a love for righteousness that characterizes your life? It's a pattern that you see in your life. If so, then you pass the test. Well, if so, you can rejoice in all this and say, man, it really looks like that's great evidence that I can be assured that I'm God's and he's mine and I can be assured of my salvation. It looks like he's given me a new heart and a new mind. Now, sometimes it's difficult to see fruit in your own life and because we see ourselves every day. So this is where the local church can help you. So if you struggle with, man, I don't know, I, I don't know, it seems like I've kind of been the same for a long time, ask a trusted friend here. Ask a trusted pastor or an elder or a mentor and say, what do you see in my life? Do you, if you struggle with this, say, do you see evidence of salvation in me? And they might say, you know what, I do. I've seen a pattern of your life. It's not perfect, but I see a pattern in your life where you do love God. You love other people. You hate sin. You hate sin in your life and the life of others. You know what it does. And I see a love for righteousness. Yeah, I see it. I see it. And they can help you with, that, with gaining that assurance of your salvation. Or maybe you talk to some trusted people and they say, you know, I see a speck in your eye that you need to work on by God's grace. And um, I think you're saved, but this is something you need to work on. Or maybe they say, you know, I see a lot of specks, actually. And if I was to be completely honest with you, I've struggled with knowing whether you truly are a believer or not. Now, that would be very, very difficult to hear from somebody. But wouldn't you rather hear that now instead of standing before God at his judgment seat? Yeah, you would rather know now. Help me examine myself. The church can help you with that examination. So to really know if you've ever repented and believed, you need to examine your present posture. Is it one of repentance and belief, or is it one of rejection and unbelief? So as we close here today, it seems like whether you're young or old, this doctrine of assurance, it can be tough for us to apply. And I think the reason is because we know ourselves better than others do, and we know our own hearts. And we know that sometimes I can be hot, and sometimes I can be cold. And on Monday, I can love God wholeheartedly. And on Tuesday, I'm apathetic toward God, and I feel like I really don't care about him. We know that about ourselves. We wouldn't want to talk about it, but we know it. And I think that's one of the reasons why we can struggle with, man, has God really saved me? Is God going to continue to put up with me? Is he going to stick with me through all these ups and downs that I have in my own heart and mind and through my life where I have times where I fail and I sin? Well, we have to remember something. Our salvation is not dependent. Though we just talked about self-examination, it's not dependent on our works. It's dependent on Christ. It's dependent on his finished work on the cross. And we rest in that. Like I sat down in that chair and I rested. We rest in what he's done, not in what we're doing. J.D. Greer said in his book, he said, Stop asking Jesus into your heart and start resting in the finished work of Christ. Salvation comes not because you prayed a prayer correctly, but because you've leaned the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Christ. So it's kind of like that giant swing. Do you trust that rope? Do you know that no matter what difficulties face me in life, whatever I'm staring at down the chute, 
that God has got a grip on me that is firm and he's never going to let go, that I'm in his hand no matter what. And I don't know what kind of difficult situation that you might be facing right now or that you will face in 2018, but there's going to be something. And to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, God has me. He's my father. He loves me. He's in control of this. I can trust him. That is vitally important to get you to pull that cord of faith and be like, you know what, I can face this because God's got me. He's got my back and he is in control. I hope that you are living in light of that assurance. If you're not, I would encourage you, go back and read the book of 1 John. Pray about this. Have other people help you to examine your posture in life if it's one of repentance and belief.